Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we're doing this time round is there is a TV show about a porn brokerage in America, and the TV show is called Porn Stars, which is obviously a slightly distasteful take on a very different type of role, which has all kinds of problems associated with it. And I'm telling you right now, I'm not going to touch that with a barge pole, okay? But... I'm going to say that I'm a relative latecomer to the TV show, but I find it fascinating because it's a way in to a form of communal banking and credit and money exchange that goes back thousands of years. And whereas a lot of what I do tends to be about bigger things, I might be talking about nation building or emperors or battles, I do like to do some stuff that has more of an impact on society and I think that this is a really interesting way into it. We are of course going to be going back thousands of years, I just said, we're going to be covering multiple different continents, we're going to be talking about different societies and also I'll be talking about where this early form of banking and credit is in the modern world. Sounds interesting? Let's start on a different continent on a different thing. So, in 1979, the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, started a TV show called The Antiques Roadshow. And if you don't know this, it is the most British TV show you can see. You may think the Great British Bake Off, that's the one, but no, 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 please. I remember as a kid, this is easy Sunday afternoon viewing. And what happens is... The Antiques Roadshow arrives in a certain town, and it's almost always, at least by memory, and indeed I have seen, it is still running as a TV show. It may have been launched in 79, but it is in rude health in the 21st century. And what happens is, it sets up, and people come with their family heirlooms. It's an opportunity to show off this stuff, whatever it may be. And you have the experts having a look at it, and they'll ask the people, so, what do you know about it? And sometimes people have a a long and elaborate background story to it. It's like, okay, fair enough. Well, that's true. That matches everything that I can see with this object. Sometimes it's a case of, that doesn't match what this object is. This object is completely different to what you've just told me the story about. And sometimes people say, don't know. I've just had it for years. I'd like to know more about the thing. 
So what they do is they have a look at it, and I'm going to say this is a classic bit of light history. This is a bit like the TV show Who Do You Think You Are, or indeed like Porn Stars, and I'll, I'll come to that in a minute. What I mean by light history, and I'm going to put myself in the same category, it's like, look, the show is about antiques and heirlooms in people's houses. What's the show actually about? Well, when somebody picks up a vase, they might turn around and say, okay, this is spode, which is a type of fine bone china from Stoke-on-Trent. This would have been created in the 1800s. And then we learn a little bit about the ceramics industry in Britain and how Britain led the world. I mean, although china, literally, is what we use as a term for fine porcelain ware, obviously it goes back a lot longer than anything in Britain. But the point is, by the 19th century, Britain had kind of taken all the skills of China and had refined them further. So you learn a little bit of the ceramics industry, you learn a bit about British imperial trade, and you get something pretty in front of you that you can latch all that history on. It's very accessible. And indeed, I keep using the term porcelain or China because a lot of it is 19th century from the 1800s type China. But look, there may be paintings, there may be the occasional flintlock musket, there'll be jewellery and other sort of things. But yeah, I mean, let's face it, what do people have hanging around their houses? It's this old pot or bit of glassware or something like that. And you get these wonderful, hairy British experts standing there in like three-piece suits. And everybody, in a very British way, politely stands around the person who has the conversation with the experts. And the key bit, the bit that everybody wants to see in the Antiques Roadshow is they will then put a value to it. Now, the thing in the Antiques Roadshow is they are putting a value on it so you know what to insure it for in your home insurance. But there is this little game that is played. It's like, well, how much do you think it's worth? And they'll go, oh, I don't know, maybe 400 pounds ago. Well, actually, this is designed by this very well-known creator and actually only 10 of them were ever done. So actually, it's worth more like 10,000 pounds. And they'll go, oh, good heavens, <laughs> which is about as British, you know, close to swearing as you're going to get on the BBC on a Sunday afternoon. And you'll get a polite ripple of like, oh, well done amongst the onlookers as well. And you know, uh, for some of these people, it's like, excellent. I have hit pay dirt. I'm taking this to an auction. I'm flogging it and um, I'm going to get rid of it because it's worth a lot more than I thought. And of course, some of them, it's like a family heirloom and they genuinely are going to be keeping it. But there is this polite little game in the Antiques Roadshow. Now, for the record, I did watch an episode, a recent episode, so I could swat up for this particular podcast. I haven't watched it for... 30 years, something like that. So, yeah, it's been a while. The format is basically the same. Obviously, the experts over the years, they retire and new ones come in. It's nice to see more people of different ethnicities in it and also women there as well now. So that's lovely. You know, all that's good and more reflective of modern British society. But that's where it ended. And then, as I said, I've come later to the game to this TV show called Porn Stars, which is basically everything I've just said. People turn up at the pawn shop, the pawn brokerage, and they basically say, okay, so what have you got? So the format is exactly the same. You have an expert standing there who then the person comes up, they have their thing, it's a family heirloom, but the difference is one of the first things that the pawnbroker will say is, what do you want to do? Do you want to pawn it or do you want to sell it? And almost always they say, I want to sell it. So now... 
we go through exactly the same process that I've mentioned. Although, because the pawnbroker may not be an expert on this particular thing, they then phone somebody to come in. Hey, I, I've got a friend. Can you uh, wait around for a while? We'll have them have a look at this thing. And then the real expert on this particular area, it might be like Civil War armaments. It might be comic books of the 1970s, all kinds of things. It might be musical instruments like, you know, literal rock band guitars, things like that. And then the expert will come in and they'll have a look at it and then they will independently give their valuation. So what happens is the person comes in, hands over the thing and the pawnbroker will say, well, how much do you want for it? And they might say a thousand dollars. And then independently, the expert will have a look at it and go, you know, it's 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 worth. And they might turn around, and say it's worth two thousand dollars. Excellent news. The person who's brought it in is now feeling a bit more bullish about their one thousand but sometimes they turn around and go, there are loads of these, it's probably worth 400 bucks. And then, and this is completely different to the Antiques Roadshow and is what makes Porn Stars such compelling viewing, is now we've got a negotiation on our hands. So we've had an independent person give the thing a value. The question is, does the current owner agree with that value? And how urgently do they need the money? But in the meantime, as the pawnbroker, and there are, I'll come on to the, the various personalities of the show in a moment. What happens here, though, is they say, look, he said it's worth $2,000. But first of all, I have to advertise it. Secondly, you know, there'll be a commission on this. If I put it in my own auction, it'll be taking up space. So there are costs to me. And even if I sell it for 2000 I can't buy it from you for 2000 because there's no profit in it. So, you know, that is why I'm going to offer you 1000 The other person goes, oh, I think you'd do better than that. And then maybe they end up at, let's say, 1300 So clearly the pawnbroker's got to make a profit there. But also the person walked away with 1300 when they only wanted 1000 What is more interesting is when they think, oh, yeah, this is worth 10000 They go, it's worth $200. And then the question is, it's like, well, if nobody thinks that, then fine. Or in other cases, and there are instances of this where people get a bit angry, but insulted at the experts going, with all due respect, I don't think you know what you're talking about, which is hilarious and great TV, of course. So you've got the antiques roadshow side of it, where you get a little bit of light history, where either the expert or the pawnbroker will say, oh, yeah, so this comes from this time and it's about this. A great one will be things like pocket watches, pointing out how pocket watches were invented in the 1500s and went on till the end of the 19th century, like the late 1800s. And then at the turn of the 20th century, we start getting wristwatches, what obviously what we consider a watch nowadays. But initially, wristwatches were considered quite feminine. And so what the wristwatch manufacturers did is they actually paid Hollywood stars to wear them so people could see them in movies and start thinking, well, you know, Clark Gable's wearing one, I want to wear one too. You get the idea. So you get this bit of social history, you get this light bit of history there about the history of pocket watches evolving into wrist watches, for example. So that's the kind of stuff I love. You could say that this podcast, as I've said, is sort of in the same area. I start with a bit of pop culture, but then we go into some real history. It's a, a way to guide you in as opposed to, here's a 400-page book on the history of the pocket watch which is being translated from German, which has footnotes on every single page. That will be far more information than you'll get from watching an episode of Porn Stars, but a lot more people watch Porn Stars than will ever read that particular book. 
So I keep sort of like talking around the people and so on and so forth. So what I find interesting is they all end in nines. So 1979 is when the Antiques Roadshow first was aired on the BBC. Then in 1989, the Gold and Silver Pawn Shop was set up by Richard Harrison in Las Vegas. And it's a pretty standard... In Britain, we call them pawn brokers. In America, we call them pawn shops. It's exactly the same thing. And I'll come on to what that actually means in a bit when we get to the history side. So, Richard Harrison set it up in 89. And Richard Harrison has a son called Rick. And Rick has been trying to pitch the idea of, like, creating a reality show around a pawn brokerage for quite some time. And it doesn't pay off until 2009 is when Porn Stars starts coming out. Now, what's interesting is Rick himself has had a son, Corey. So we've got basically grandfather, father and son as three of the four most important people on the TV show. By the time the TV show happens, the father, the grandfather, I should say, he is now sort of semi-retired and he's referred to as the old man. And Rick is, if you like, the central character. He's in his 40s and he's sort of like seen as the, the brains of the operation. Cory, however, as the young buck is sort of pushing up against dad. And Cory has a friend who's called Austin Russell, who is nicknamed Chumley. And Chumley is the fourth part of this sort of uh, four part, this quartet of pawnbrokers dealing with things. So each one has kind of specializations and they therefore meet different people. But what's worth pointing out is just as the Antiques Roadshow is edited for content and so on and so forth, so is also Porn Stars. Now, what happens if you watch an episode and you can get sort of like, you know, the top five toughest negotiations videos on YouTube, things like that, various compilations. So there's lots of it on YouTube, but, you know, you can also see it on reruns on TV. And indeed, it is a history channel TV show. And I will say, I use the term light history, and like I say, you know, something like the History Channel, it needs to be accessible, but also needs to be entertainment. Edutainment, maybe? I'm going to accept it's just about history, but also I get that the History Channel needs to get some viewers as well. But it is the second most successful reality TV show on the History Channel, second only to Jersey Shores. Now, if you don't know what Jersey Shores is, the UK version is basically The Only Way is Essex, and there's also Geordie Shores as well. Basically, it's a reality TV show with young, let's be blunt, not particularly well-educated, beautiful people arguing with each other and going off on their social lives and sort of accidentally cheating on each other and getting drunk and being idiotic. Now... You could argue 500 years into the future that this is a sociological snapshot of the state of youth in the early 21st century, if you're being polite. Basically, it's just sensational garbage and has no justification to be on a channel called the History Channel, okay? But let's stick with the Porn Stars one, shall we? So, as I said, it's all set up to be this sort of, like, you've got one of the people, let's say Rick, who is bald, and he's sort of, like, good-natured. He's got this very cigarette sort of raspy laugh, which he laughs at the slightest drop of the hat. <laughs> which makes, um, I mean, either he's a friendly person or he might be a bit irritating in the sense that, you really, you're laughing at that? Anyway, he might be standing behind the counter and this person comes up. 
reveals the thing and then they start getting into the conversation and then they'll get an expert to come by the store and the rest i've talked you through the basic process but that is not actually what's happening basically since the end of the first series they discovered that so many people were turning up to the shop the 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 pawn brokerage that basically they couldn't get filming done. So anytime you see them just sort of standing around and waiting for somebody to sort of like arrive for them, this is all stage. Literally everybody in the background is either cast crew or maybe they just grabbed a couple of people off the streets to just be there so that they can kind of control the situation. It's not a mad scrum of a situation. And indeed, exactly whether the show is still going is up for debate. It seems that Rick's kind of done with it and let's face it, 2009 went to 2023 most of the main filming had been finished by the end of 2020 obviously we've got covid getting in there as well but you know it's a business and while you know they've had a chance to be reality tv stars at the same time you got all these people queuing who just want to say i've been to the store that doesn't generate any money so i think partly that apparently a few of the business decisions have gone bad as well and some of the experts turned out to be not quite as expert as people thought. Indeed, some of them have actually carried out various crimes and have gone to prison. So I'm not going to go into the details of that. But when some of those people say, I don't think you know what you're talking about, maybe they had a point. Maybe they were arrogant and weren't listening to somebody. You know, look, you can go to prison and still be an expert on something. So, yeah, there's a sort of tension in there as well. Also, Chumley. Let's talk about Chumley. So Rick is sometimes the butt of the joke in the sense that he's, oh, dad's so old-fashioned kind of thing. No, oh, he loves anything to do with the you know, US Revolution. And it's like, does anybody really want to see a copy of whatever Alexander Hamilton's letters or what have you? And all that kind of stuff. He's the old-fashioned one. And then you've got the old man who's sort of very hard to impress and he'll be grumpy at his son, Rick. But then you've got Chumley, and he's generally sort of portrayed as, yes, he's got expertise in things like collectible footwear and things like video games. I mean, something like an original SNES, the Super Nintendo, something like that's worth money nowadays. And, you know, some, some of the cartridges hardly existed at all. So it's weird. Yes, we can talk about antique Victorian pocket watches, but there is actually a market for things like playstation ones and and things like that from your youth so he's got his own area of expertise clearly it's not going to be revolutionary literature but he's quite often seen as the butt of the joke and he's a bit dumb etc and he does seem to want to be called chumley so that's what i'm going to call him if you look at him throughout the series sometimes he's really quite thin and sometimes he's definitely larger he seesawed and tried really really hard to the point where he's even got a gastric band i believe it was was introduced towards the end of the series so he's gone up and down in his weight but on one occasion he was raided by the police they found class a drugs on his property including also an unlicensed firearm as well so he's got a three-year suspended sentence i believe it's now being played out but Guns and drugs aren't just sort of like, oh, well, that's a parking ticket. That's serious stuff. And he does have a wife, and I'll put it out there. As I said, he's been seesawing with his weight. Basically, he's a convicted felon. And also, he's not the smartest guy out there. But I'm going to say right now, you might want to do a Google search for his wife because she is an attractive young lady. Now, Chumley is now turned 40, and she's in her 20s, so... 
hey, you know, whatever works for you. But that's uh, that's a surprise and definitely a win for Chumley. So as I said, you pick up light information on all kinds of topics as they go around. The different people turn up and come up with their various different stuff. And the creators of the show trying it's not like this entire episode it's all going to be about china or porcelain china as it were you know just like the antiques road show you know we we might have a painting then we might have a musical instrument and so on and so forth but what's interesting of course is in america and just to remind you i said this at the beginning this is in las vegas and it's a really clever place to have a pawn shop because lots of people go to las vegas to gamble so some people bring stuff with them so that they can pawn it and then they've got money to go and ready to pop the question the jewelers at blue have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And gamble it and good luck with that if that's what you want to do. But it means that it kind of hoovers up antiquities from all over America. So you do get genuinely different stuff appearing. And sometimes it's fake and they get to tell the people it's fake and the boy do their faces drop. But the thing I find really interesting is a big difference between America and Britain is there's a lot more firearms that are being brought in. But what's interesting is I have now learnt from this show that in terms of pawn brokerages or basically owning firearms in America, that if it's from before 1890-90, then basically it's considered an antique and you don't need any special licenses for it. So if you were to get perhaps one of the most legendary handguns, one of the first 
reliable semi-automatic handguns is the Browning 1911. So this is something that Al Capone would have used. This is something you would have had a soldier potentially using in World War One. It was released in 1911 for the record, but it's still variants of it still on the market today in the 21st century. It's that reliable a gun. It is a design classic in the world of firearms. But even though it's a 1911, more than 100 years old, it's not created in the 1890s or earlier, so you would need a specific gun license, gun trading, all that kind of stuff. So sometimes when it's on the edge, the reason why they're getting the expert in is to say, look, is this the 1892 edition or the 1896 edition? Because if it's the 6, I can't buy it because of the law, which I find fascinating. But it does mean that the classic in inverted commas, sort of Wild West-type guns, things like the Colt Peacemaker from the 1860s, that's something that they can buy. Some of them might just be a standard one, and some of them might be sort of a legendary one. This is the one that Wild Bill Hickok had, and here's the proof. And one of the critical things is they're looking for providence, the proof of ownership. I'll come on to why that's a problem in a minute when I get into the history. So, you get to see the workings of a type of company, a type of organization that you're usually not privy to, you get some history and, you know, you learn some stuff and there's a bit of banter going on between these guys. Sometimes it's painfully, obviously written, as it were. But it's just, look, not everything has to be sort of Oscar winning. This is just a bit like the Antiques Roadshow. It's just something fun to watch on a Sunday afternoon. So I'm now moving away from the actual show and moving into what is a pawn brokerage? Because as a kid, I sort of thought I knew what one was and I was halfway there, basically. So what I find interesting about it is they always say in the show, are you looking to sell or are you looking to pawn it? Now, if they're looking to sell, it's basically at that point it becomes, is it something I think I can buy from you at a low enough price that I can resell it at a decent price? But what pawning is, is one of the earliest forms of borrowing against collateral. And the first time we've got something like that is round about 1000 BC in China. So, yeah, okay, it's one of these ones where China got there first, all right? But it just, you need a relatively complex society with also some kind of, sort of monetary process going on or, you know, bartering at the very least. Although that's harder to barter on on something to do with pawn brokerage. The society needs to exist there. It was there in ancient Greece, so around about 500 BC. And what I find interesting is in the modern world, a lot of the basic laws of pawn brokerage haven't really changed. You know, basically extra laws have been added on top of it, but the fundamentals come from Roman law. As America's legal system has sort of like basically been inspired, in inverted commas, by Western European legal systems, it means that in 21st century America, some of their pawn brokerages laws were brokered in the time of the Caesars in Europe, which is a great sort of through line of history. It does show you that history is alive and well and preserved in sometimes the most unusual of places. So, as I said, if they're selling it, you will know what that is. But what is pawning it? So what it basically means, and, you know, people sitting there going, well, there, there are variations to this. Yeah, but basically what it is, is this. I bring a thing to you. You might tell me that it's worth, we'll keep it in American money and keep it simple. You'll turn around to me and say, okay, this is worth $50. So I give it to you. You give me $50. 
and then I can perhaps pay back somebody or something like that. But the agreement is that I have, let's say, 60 days to come back with, I'll sort of exaggerate just to prove a point, $55. So in other words, it's, it works exactly the same way as a bank. Only pawnbrokers existed before anything called a bank existed. So you can see how, in particularly if we're talking about peasants in ancient China, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, this is a really good way to quickly get access to actual cash. Because hardly anybody, although somewhere like the Roman civilization had coinage, it doesn't mean everybody is painting coins all the time. For example, one of the reasons why we've got the term salary is because it comes from salt, which is what part of a Roman legionary. They're paid partly in money, partly in land when you finally uh, finished your term of service as a legionary, but also partly in salt. Salt was extremely expensive. You could use it as a preservative and as a flavoring. It was a very useful thing to have. Not so much if you're trying to buy a piece of property, because they probably want the coinage rather than the salt, which can, you know, dissolve. <laughs> so, if I need coins, I need to go to a brokerage, a pawn brokerage, where I give you the goods, and then, if for some reason, so I said, 60 days, you've got 60 days to give me that 55 bucks, if I never see you again, after 60 days, it's now mine. And so I now sell it, let's say I sell it for 70 bucks, and I've turned a profit in that situation. Now, going back to the provenance thing, going back to the show me how you've owned this and all that kind of stuff, it does not take a genius to work out, hang on, so if I wait for somebody to get drunk, walk down an alleyway, smack them over the head with a, I don't know, bottle or something, so they're now lying unconscious in a gutter, and then I steal their pocket watch and then run to the nearest pawnbrokers, and then give it to the pawnbroker, and say, oh yeah, it's mine, governor, honest, then, yeah, obviously that's a pretty easy way to just make money. It's like, I could sell it to you, or I could pretend to pawn it to you, so I look more, perhaps, legitimate, and therefore, there are specific laws which have been around for, if not centuries, then millennia, about receiving stolen goods. And there are indeed several examples where, basically, in porn stars, they've actually been caught out that way. It's not so much the person that they're dealing with had stolen it, but somewhere down the line, somebody had stolen it and sold it on and sold it on, so that the person actually selling it to them thinks it's legit, it isn't, but the pawnbroker's basically the end of the line, and they are now liable. They have to hand it in, even though they've paid, let's say, $500 for the thing, they will still have to hand the thing over to the police. It is stolen goods. And there is actually a technical phrase for people who knowingly buy and sell stolen goods. And in the English language, at least, it's known as offence. Okay, so offence is definitely illegal. A pawn brokerage is absolutely fine. Knock yourself out if you want to be a pawnbroker. But you can suddenly see that it is a risky game to play. Not everybody has paperwork. I have some family heirlooms I have no paperwork for whatsoever. But I also know that they're legit. So, yeah, if I walked into a pawnbrokerage and said, hey, how much for this thing? Go, where's the paperwork? Got? I've got nothing. Well, they might phone the cops on me, which is why I'm not planning on selling my... Well, that's not the only reason why I'm not going to sell my family heirlooms, because they're my family heirlooms, okay? But what's interesting is you get... You know, famous people from history dealing with pawnbrokers. Here's a sentence that you probably never thought you'd ever hear. But King Edward III of England and King Henry V of England 
pretty famous well-known warrior kings of England in the medieval era, both of them, their claim to fame, is they pawned the royal jewels, you know, the crown and all the jewels associated to a pawnbroker to get a lot of money so that they could fight a war. Good news for the pawnbrokers, both those people were able to win wars and therefore pay the pawnbrokers back. So, you know, give us back the literally family jewels, the crown jewels. Imagine in the modern world, if a monarchy had to do that, that would cause a sensation and all kinds of problems would arise from that. So, yeah, that's that's not something that's going to happen again, I'm going to say. But sticking with another Henry, Henry VII, father of the famous Henry VIII, we have him on the statute books about legislation, specifically adding some extra layers of due diligence to pawn brokerages in England. So, you know, you've got very different, as I said, I mentioned ancient China, ancient Greece, Romans. Now we sort of fast forwarded to the Middle Ages. If you've got someone like Edward III, we're talking about the 1300s. We're talking about Henry V, early 1400s. And then we're talking about Henry VII, late 1400s. So this is stuff that's kind of intrinsic to all kinds of societies. But what I find also interesting is they actually are one of the first things that kind of had a brand associated with them. Don't forget, we are talking about something at a time which is kind of pre-literate societies. Yeah, monks could read, but also they took a vow of poverty, so they're not going to a pawn brokerage. So, in Europe, the sign for a pawn brokers, nobody's quite sure why. But for some reason in, in Europe, it's three golden balls, usually in a triangular shape. And so if you saw three golden balls hanging out the front of a shop, you knew that that was a pawn brokerage and you could go in there. What's interesting is it's definitely linked to the Medicis, a banking family in Florence, Italy. Now, their symbol is three spheres. So clearly pawn brokerage, but they wanted to start moving away. They became so powerful. They were basically the de facto rulers of Florence. So they wanted to be a bit more classy than pawnbrokers. So there was this wonderful legend saying, no. What it is, is, yes, it's a shield with three circles on it, but what that is, is our ancestor fought a giant, and the giant kept hitting his shield with his giant club, and it sort of caused these three dents, these three circular dents in the shield, and that's what it is. It's got nothing to do with pawnbrokers. The one slight problem with that story is, of course, giants don't exist, so... Hey-ho, anyway, it's wonderful that you've got that element there. But hey, let me tell you about a couple of other cultures and their symbols. So, in specifically Hong Kong, but also in, in parts of southern China, pawn brokerages still exist in almost every country in the world. Not so much the Islamic world, because, you know, there's issues with banking and Sharia law. But, you know, if we're talking about Indonesia or France or America, you know, these places aren't exactly got a lot of common ground in many areas, but people will always need access to some kind of credit. These people, you know, in the modern world may find it very hard to raise a loan in a bank. You know, they just don't have enough collateral. Collateral is something that's worth value that I can put against to make this less risky for you to loan me money. But, you know, if I've got my little golden coin or something like that, family heirloom, I can put it in to a pawn shop for a couple of months, get myself sorted out, got my cash flow okay, get the coin back again. It, it works everywhere. And in particularly Hong Kong, the symbol, if you're walking down the street, if you see a bat holding a gold coin, that's a pawnbroker. What I find interesting is in Japan, it's completely different. You will quite often see the number seven because in Japanese, and please, I 
I'm not going to start pronouncing it. Seven sounds a bit like pawnbroker in Japanese. It's all, I guess they kind of sound similar, like which which is which sort of thing, or two and two and two. Therefore, it's just all like, okay, seven, I know that's a pawnbroker. And that's the thing. You just need a sign so people get what you do. Of course, this can, particularly in America, you could be dealing, you know, literally selling 150-year-old, but they're still technically something that could be used, firearm or something like that. And indeed, you need a special license to sell more modern. Some pawn brokerages do. So therefore, they're going to have increased security because if you're selling somebody a shotgun and some ammunition, you want to make sure that they don't turn it around on you. So that's obviously something that happens. And indeed, in other countries, sometimes they're sort of like standing behind bulletproof glass or they're specifically on a raised counter, so they got a height advantage on you. These people are dealing with both money and various valuable goods. There's almost always in a pawnbroker's an area for rings and things like that. It's a pretty obvious thing that people can, can sort of like sell and use. Indeed, I know that in a lot of Islamic countries, also including places like India, you'll sometimes see sort of peasant women out in the fields, but they've got like gold bangles on. It's like, why is that? And that's basically because the safest thing you can do is carry your own money. Because if for some reason you want to get out of there, maybe you've got an abusive spouse or something like that, I've got all my money on me. And, you know, if it's a sort of gold bangle, that's something where everybody, where you can test the quality and then you can perhaps get things sorted out. And I've got some cash so I can now get out of the situation or start anew or what have you. So all of this is sort of like happening to do with this wonderful thing called Porn Stars, which yes, it's a name that over the years is sort of beginning to grate on me. Maybe it's the same for you. Apologies if it is. But I really like it as a show. And it's a window into something a bit different. And of course, with modern banking, it means that pawn brokerages aren't what they were, let's say, 100 years ago. They tend to be seen as a bit more seedy, a bit more like it's my last chance saloon kind of thing. And I get it. But at the same time, people, as I said, will always need access to some kind of funds. And not everybody's comfortable working with a bank. And when I was talking about fencing and money laundering and things like that, all of these things could be associated with pawnbrokers. But most of them tend to be sort of family run organizations, much like the gold and silver pawn shop in Las Vegas. And then when you look at sometimes the controversies and shocks around, you know, huge international banking corporations, I'm going to say the pawnbrokers look less dirty than those guys sometimes. I'm not going to start sounding like, you know, fight the power, let's start a revolution or anything like that. But as soon as you've got money and wealth involved, things can get murky pretty quickly. And pawnbrokering is something that has been around, like I said, longer than actual financial banking institutions. And that's something I think that any pawnbroker should be proud of. Love to get your thoughts on this. I'm at Gem Deducci on Twitter. Please say hi if you've got any suggestions. I've been meaning to do this one for a while, and because it's not particularly time sensitive, not quite sure when it's coming out, but you know, it's just it's an example of a show that it's always on repeat. There are like more than five hundred episodes of it. You could do worse than sitting down and watching a couple of the episodes. Please don't start binge watching ten of them because they do really start fitting into a kind of rhythm and routine. You start seeing the writing there, and it's it all feels a little less spontaneous. But yeah, watch a couple of episodes. It's half an hour at a time. It's not going to sort of rock your world, but it is always a bit interesting. There's always a little something that you're going to love. 
Thanks very much, and another episode coming soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.